Welcome back to this special bumper edition of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, split across two parts. You're now listening to part two of our rankings of the James Bond opening title sequences. Um, so if you've missed part one, if you've if it's hiding in your feed somewhere, or if you didn't find it on our website at fantasy-animation.org, by all means have another closer look, I'm sure you'll find it there, um, and you can listen to our rankings um, from 24 to 13 um, of the title sequences there. What you're about to hear is our top 12 um, and uh, our completion of this uh, of this task um, with our very special guest, Ed Lamberti. Ed is an independent researcher who has published a book on performing ethics through film style. Uh, he's also assistant editor of various books um, that are out there in the universe and is a policy manager at the BBFC. But he's speaking today in his academic capacity. Sit back, enjoy the rest of the show, um, and I hope you enjoy our final uh, rankings. Um, and then, of course, let us know what your favourite James Bond opening title sequence is via fantasy-animation.org or via our various social media handles, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or Reddit, at fananim research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. I'll tell you what, while looking for part one, why not also subscribe, like or give us a quick review and help boost our rankings on the various podcast subscription services. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of our discussion of the James Bond opening title sequences. Next, and our first Sean Connery, which at number Ooh. 12 is not is not bad going, I think. Um, but at, at number 12, we have You Only Live Twice, um, right. which I ranked, um, I think, pretty highly. Um, I think you had it in my top 10. Number five, I had it, um, which suggests that apparently it's my role on this podcast to stick up for the spectacle of East Asian women. So... Um, I'm not quite sure what that says about about me, and maybe I'll I'll think about that post post recording. But uh, yeah, I, I I think I think the first we'll get to the first three um, Conneries as they appear. But this is uh, well the first four. But the, this this one sort of starts to have a level of technical sophistication that I kind of as someone that kind of grew up with the with the Brosnans really, um, I associate more with the with the Bond title sequence. Um, so it was nice when that one sort of came up on my video to see it starting to look like the the ones that we then become tired of by the time we get to the end of the the, the moors right of that that the play with sort of stylized graphics um mixed with a bit of live action mixed with silhouettes um the use of sort of you know japanese architecture japanese or um origami design or at least sort of a westernized version of it i found pretty arresting i do love the song um by nancy sinatra um, so yeah, I think I think I was pleased to see that sort of te- just a technical display of various different devices um, included and, and operated, and it, and it and it sat well with me. I don't really have much more to say about it than that. Um, uh, you only live twice. Well, I ranked it number twenty-one, so <laughs> <laughs> perhaps perhaps I'll be the other polar opposite. I've put it's kind of atypical. Like I'll give it that. I think the first you have, you have sort of the different types of title sequence in the first four movies. You have the animated dots of dr no you have the projected women or screen the women as screens as i said with your with um from us with love and goldfinger and then you have the silhouettes of women in thunderball which is why i think i've ranked thunderball quite yeah thunderball and from rush with love quite high you only live twice yeah it's it's atypical it's got more filmed footage than silhouettes and i've got i've put that there's a lot of there's a lot of just sort of rather than abstract backgrounds it is it is filmed footage of volcanoes and lava and, and landscapes, and then you have silhouettes over the top of that. It always annoys me that the title is off-center 
when that when it appears. I don't know why that annoys me. It kind of opens out, and I always think, why is that title emerging from a shuttlecock? Every time I watch it, it sort of opens out, and then the t- and it's slightly off center, and I'm not, I don't really like it. But I, but also, I like the design, I like the typography, and the the kind of font and the way that the images are um, sort of supported by the the text. So actually, as a credit sequence that introduces the people in the movie. I really like it, but as a Bond credit sequence, it's yeah. I, I prefer the song rather than the images. I'd rather, I'd rather have the pre-credit sequence where where James Bond gets shot, which is interesting because it's the third film in a row where you have JB dead. You mm-hmm. have from Rush with Love where he gets garroted, but it's not really him. You have uh, Bouvier at the start of Thunderball, but it's not really him. Uh, and then you have this one where he gets killed, and it's not he's not really dead. Um, and so I'd rather go from that to Nancy Sinatra's You Only Live Twice, go and make a cup of tea with the song in the background and then come back when Connery's got his funeral, which is obviously very prescient, we should say. We're recording this um, a couple of weeks, uh, well, not even that, after Sean Connery sadly passed away. But um, yeah, so I think there's... there's I, I prefer the song to, rather than the visuals. I could quite happily listen to Nancy Sinatra sing without without the visuals. Um, I mean, I think I think it's interesting that the... the... That that I mean, you you both pick up on the kind of photographic sort of you know real footage sort of nature of of a lot of the sort of imagery in the opening credit sequence, and particularly like the lava and the volcanoes. Because of course, story wise, the fact that the Spectre base is hidden inside a volcano is particularly fantastical. Um, and and so it feels to me that an aspect of the opening credits is to kind of almost convince us that of of the kind of realism of the fantastic. The fantastical that we're going to encounter as the as the film progresses. So I sort of feel that there's something interestingly sort of thematic about the opening credit sequence that it really is striving to root this outlandish fantasy in something indexical and sort of photographically sort of authentic. The other thing I feel I, I like the song, um, I like the, the the font and so on. I like the use of the kind of Japanese traditional umbrella sort of uh, kind of uh, graphics. Um, overlaying those those sort of images of lava and so on. The other thing I would sort of say about it is that it struck me again watching it again uh, recently, sort of preparing for this, that before, in terms of the order of the credits themselves in the sequence, before we have the producer and director credits that you know the sequence culminates with, the, the last credit prior to them is the director of photography credit, Freddie Young, whereas normally you'd expect the credit prior to producer and director to be the screenwriter's credit. And this screenplay was written by Roald Dahl, so, you know, a big name in himself. But Freddie Young got the uh, sort of pole position there of credit before producer and director. And, you know, to me, that sort of just signals an aspect of how this film sort of pivots towards the epic. Um, that Freddie Young was David Lean's uh, cinematographer on Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, and he'd won Oscars for both of those films. Um, and then was hired to be the cinematographer on You Only Live Twice. So they have Freddie Young hot off sort of two David Lean epics going to Japan with them to shoot You Only Live Twice. And the the, the credits sequence dissolves through into a, into um, Hong Kong Island on a big sort of wide-angle travelogue shot. And it feels to me that the credits are gesturing towards um, a kind of epic travelogue quality in You Only Live Twice. And obviously we see in other Bond films too, but I think You Only Live Twice in particular was striving to present to audiences at that time. We have a tie at number 10. And I've I've never been more joyous to say a sentence in my life than this tie uh we have the two brosnan movies we've yet to mention tied at number 10 so that's tomorrow never dies and the world is not enough uh i'm just joyous about both of them i think they're both marvelous i'm so wonderful but 
what I'm ashamed of is that the reason these things are ranked higher is not because of my efforts, as much as I would have loved to have been the one responsible for it. Actually, both of you have got one of these ranked very high each. So what I would suggest we do um, is that, uh, Ed, you uh, can be the advocate for um, Tomorrow Never Dies, and then Chris, you can be the advocate um, for The World Is Not Enough. And I will just enjoy um, the process because they're both brilliant. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm just so glad they got to the top 10. So, um, Ed, why don't you kick us off with Tomorrow Never Dies? Yeah, uh, I, as a film, um, I think it's the best Piers Brosnan Bond film. I just think it has a real sort of organic um, uh, storytelling effectiveness to it. Um, it's got a breakneck pace. Um, the opening credit sequence, um, Chris mentioned earlier on, um, sort of disliking sort of particularly kind of overly sort of CGI'd or sort of computerized yeah. credit sequences. And this one is certainly one of those. It's based around sort of um, notions of sort of like circuit boards and, and things like that. And, and that befits the theme of this uh, movie from 1997, which is a sort of a, a kind of megalomaniacal um, uh, sort of media mogul who's kind of manipulating the media for his own nefarious ends. And so there's a lot of sort of um, internet 1.0 paranoia in Tomorrow Never Dies. That interestingly, I felt felt quite dated when Tomorrow Never Dies came out, but which I actually feel has aged very well indeed. So 20 years ago, I sort of thought, oh, it's a little bit old hat pointing out how dangerous the internet is. But now, of course, we can see so many ways in which the kind of digital world in which we live, um, you know, has negatives as well as positives. And I think Tomorrow Never Dies is quite prescient in that. The other thing I'd say is brilliant song, Sheryl Crow, brilliant vocal, excellent lyrics, beautiful sort of orchestrated use of women and the circuit boards and the kind of colour scheme, lots of sort of dark pinks and greys. And it is quite a grainy sort of texture to the credits as well but I just think it works really well and the other thing I'll say about Tomorrow Never Dies and I know that you guys agree with me on this is it's the Bond film with two great Bond songs because <laughs> the other, because um, David Arnold and KD Lang recorded Surrender which it was decided would not be used over the opening credits but which is used over the end credits so I just want to sort of say you get two great Bond songs for the price of one with this movie. Yes, I would. I would agree with that. Uh, I so I ranked. Yeah, tomorrow never dies at twenty. Yeah, so I, quite should, I should down. say what I didn't point out is that oddly, the reason these two clearly in the top ten is I ranked both of them very highly, but not as highly. Ed ranked tomorrow never dies very highly, and Chris had it near the bottom, and the exact opposite is true of the next movie. So um, yep. between the three yep. of us, we managed to limp it into the top ten spot. Um, so I, I really like. Yeah, I like tomorrow never dies. I, I agree. It's, I think it's Brosnan's best movie. Uh, I think from. Um, th there are bits of it where it doesn't let go and it's just sequence after sequence after sequence and and part of that is perhaps the success of GoldenEye the success of GoldenEye the video game and the desire to create a film that is basically a series of levels so you have the scene in here then the scene in there and then the and Bond doesn't really encounter much uh, obstruction he just kind of goes from the Hotel Atlantic to the car park to you know or the the uh, pressing engagement and the you know the newspaper printing press but absolutely right the sort of prescience of of um tomorrow never dies I, I like some of the electronic imagery so some of that kind of techno futurist imagery um the idea of television signals and broadcast media and uh rgb cables where you get the three kind of colors splintering off and, and you're sort of seeing this electronic circuitry but i think there's kind of too much of it there's too there's too much going on and after a brilliant pre-credit sequence and i recently tweeted david arnold and asked 
about this and and um he's I, i'm a big fan of the pre-credit sequence of uh tomorrow never dies and in particular the song white knight which is on the on the soundtrack as you well know uh tomorrow um I should also say that this is coming at a period where, so I was, yeah, kind of teenager and Tomorrow Never Dies is 97. World Is Not Enough is the Bond film I've seen the most. I saw it on consecutive days at the cinema, consecutive nights at the cinema when I was uh, 14, 15 years old. Uh, I think it's fabulous. I think it's absolutely fabulous. I've got it in the background because I just I just like watching it. I think the song's really great. I bought the singles, so the garbage song, um, the world is not enough which i think is is a, a very underrated song i think the film is terrific i think the opening sequence is terrific it's sort of the opening pre-credit sequence has got this sort of mythology about it that it was really the really short sequence at the guggenheim um and then the song was originally there but that's not true that's not true the sequence was always the long is like 14 minutes or something to include the boat chase down the river thames which i think is fa- fascinating um then you have bond land on the millennium dome uh, and then he kind of falls into the title sequence and it's really structured around oil um, and the sort of mining of the world. And I like the fact that it uses oil rigs and crude oil and is very silhouette based. And there's a fantastic moment, which I'll probably use as the thumbnail to this podcast, because I was thinking this is a really great shot where these women are against, they're kind of dripping in oil and they're standing there and they're dripping in oil against this sort of luminescent rainbow background. And I think that is that is fantastic. Um, so I really, really like the the world is not enough. I ranked it up as as number three. So it's yeah, it's a shame that that the polarization has meant that they come in, but at least they're top ten. But no, I think the world is not enough is yeah, it's fantastic, really fantastic. Oh, I love Tomorrow Never Dies. It's the best Brosnan movie. It's one of the best Bond movies. I love the Matrix odd graphics. Screw the Matrix. I'll just watch this over and over again. Um, I love all the circuit board costumes. I love the X-ray stuff. I love the world is not enough. I love the oil motif. I love the thematic of the of concealment and revealment, which sets up the plot nicely. Oh, I love it. I've nearly finished my Black Velvet. I've lost all critical perspective and we haven't even got to number nine yet. So let's, what a, what a time we're having. Um, no, and also, so I think, I think, I think I'm really pleased that those films have, have both ranked. I think I, I prefer Tomorrow Never Dies, um, but I've actually written on The World Is Not Enough and um, I find Words Enough perhaps intellectually more fascinating, perhaps because it's got more faults and therefore more things to play with. Uh, but Tomorrow Never Dies, I could just watch on repeat, um, you know, and probably will do after we finish recording. So, um, so brilliant. Right. Number nine. Number, oh, let the party keep going. Number nine is Dr. No. Um, uh, the first James Bond movie, of course. Um, oh, it's me. I've got this ranked at number three. Um, Chris, you had it at number 10, Ed at number 16. So all in the top 10 at least. Um, I, I just I just love the simplicity of it. I mean, I think there's always a temptation to sort of um, to, to read the early Bond movies as sort of doing everything that the other movies just keep sort of trying to repeat which i think is not necessarily fair but it's so tempting to do so but i, I you know I, I love i love the sort of almost limitedness of the animation um chris i'm gonna let you say more about this but like i, I it reminded me of conversations we've had about limited animation and and the sort of staccato rhythm of, of the um of the dots and the dashes and the and the colors and the imagery it kind of almost reminds you of a sort of pop art jasper johns painting or a sort of um you know, Mark Rothko or something like that, um, and I just, I just kind of love that simplicity. So I'm, I really loved it. Um, Chris, what t- talk to us about the animation in, in the sequence? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I've, ri- I've written on the title sequence. I think it's, yeah, it's the first, and uh, until Casino Royale, the only Bond film to segue then directly, as Ed was saying earlier, from the gun barrel into the opening bars of of the song. Um, I like the experimental techniques that are involved, both kind of visually and musically. So, um, using that sort of abstract sound arrangement. Uh, composed sort of the uses the use of kind of pulses so Daphne Oram's July 1962 piece Atoms in Space which is a sort of electronic pulse music that was used um, at the start of the film and then at the end of the the movie when um, Bond is moving through the the Dr. No's lair and is is sort of um, you can hear on the on the soundtrack uh, the Oramic system so a machine that essentially translated drawings made onto glass uh, into sound effects so it's a really interesting experimental kind of moment i think in terms of the animation the use of these kind of kaleidoscopic brightly colored dots that are flashing off and on in quick succession um yep i think it's very pop art as as you say um i think it kind of ties in uh binder as as an experimenter as an animator you often find his name in histories of of experimental animation you find his name next to filmmakers like len Lai, norman mclaren oscar fishinger within these wider histories of animated typographies, motion design, music visualization, as well as like 20s German absolute films, which were kind of forms of visual music. They're kind of giving giving color and imagery to, to pieces of music. And there are films. Um, so Fischinger's 1933 film Cries, which, which I probably butchered, but translates to circles, involves a very similar molecular treatment and movement of colored dots that are moving in this kind of synchronized way to, to orchestral music. Um, uh, and there are, yeah, fishing a, an optical poem. There's one Len Lies color box, which is using abstract colored circles and vertical lines as part of its patterning. McLaren made a film called Dots in 1940. So these are very, very, like, you can really situate Dr. No within this tradition of experimental films. The second half of the Dr. No sequence, which has these sort of silhouettes of, of women in different kind of primary colors, I think, in, in sort of silhouetted form. There is a, a, a film from 1936, from Len Lai called Rainbow Dance, which is exact, almost identical. You know, it's a striking design of silhouetted human forms that parallel that kind of middle or final third, I guess, but middle section of, of Binder's titles for Dr. No, where the design shifts from those circles to gyrating uh, women to a kind of calypso drum beat. And then we get the third part of the sequence, which is the three blind mice of the three men pretending to be blind as they shuffle from um, uh, left to right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the the, dot, the dots are fascinating. The female bodies that sort of set up the um, the uh, eroticized spectacle that these titles generally trade in. You know, Bond as womanizer, Bond as international playboy. You get all of that in the Doctor No sequence. But the dot dance, I think, really situates that title sequence within these kind of broader histories of of European experimental animation, which is yeah. And it's just the confidence of it, right? I mean, the first Bond movie, and it just. T- right from the off it just is so it's so sure-footed in what it's doing and I think yeah. that, that I think that sort of it must have absolutely arrested audiences those first audiences when they sat down to watch Doctor No in 1962 and they're like blimey here we are you know because this is this is you know Hollywood cinema a lot of sort of western English language cinema was in major transition in the 1960s from sort of like the death of the studio system these big sort of lumbering epics desperate for audiences and yet audiences were getting younger they were you know tv was competing with them and so on there's a lot of counterculture movement in the 1960s student rebellions by the end of the decade the swinging 60s in london was coming through you know the beatles was the next year no sorry it was the same year as this 
Um, so there's there's a whole sort of transition from an old guard to a kind of younger guard going on here. And it feels to me that the confidence with which Dr. No presents itself, seemingly effortlessly tapping into a zeitgeist, and either tapping into or creating a zeitgeist. Well, we, we're in the swinging 60s and we will come back to the swinging 60s in various ways. But right now, let's jump to the early 1970s and do Diamonds Are Forever, which has, <laughs> has, has, is an odd one in that none of us had it like really high, but we all had it relatively high. So I think that's how it sort of managed to get to number eight. Um, you, Ed, had it the highest. So do you want to talk to us about and, and I think that probably fits with our general attitudes to the movie. Do you want to talk to us about Diamonds Are Forever? Diamonds are forever. What what are we going to do with you? I remember I remember at one point in my life, in, the, in when I was about nine years old, I would have said Diamonds Are Forever was my favourite film, bar none. I, admittedly, I hadn't seen very many films by that point. Diamonds Are Forever. Um, the I mean, it, it's very nineteen seventy one, and I mean, you know, Chris, if you said that sort of a lot of the Fury Eyes only opening credits is like you're watching it through your sort of grandmother's sort of front door panel kind of thing. Diamonds Are Forever, we're watching it through a kind of gauzy, hazy, Vaseline-smeared lensification of sort of 90, early 1970s cinema. And it's by certainly not the only movie of the era to present us with these kind of sort of glitzy, diffusely lit kind of imagery. Um, there's lots of diamond glittering going on. I mean, it's Diamonds Are Forever, why not? There's there's lots of sort of almost like abstract kind of sort of there's women in kind of it's sort of a, is it what's the background? It's like a sort of like plain background, a sort of floating women. It's a it's a really weird sequence, and and I can only really get with the weirdness because it's 1971. I'm like, well, okay, this is what this is what you got, um, but it's okay, and and it it speaks for the film as a whole really, which is again Mark O'Connell in the in. Um, Catching Bullets says that um, Diamonds Are Forever has a sort of seedy after hours quality to it. The movie as a whole, and I think he's absolutely bang on with that. Um, a lot of it's set in like nightclubs, Las Vegas. It's about drug smuggling. Um, there's something, there is something quite sleazy about Diamonds Are Forever. Nothing sleazy about Las Vegas or nightclubs, by the way, but, but there's something sleazy about how it presents its world. Um, so fun as far as it goes. Um, not to everyone's taste, I think, probably in a particularly acquired taste bomb movie. But in a way, when I'm in a Diamonds Are Forever mood, it gives me what I want. <laughs> I would say my only sentence is, my note is, silhouetted women on diamonds, cats, necklaces, sparkly. That's all I've got. Um, I think unlike, well, I was going to say, make an analogy to Tiffany Case. I think, yeah, the collars and cuffs match. The, the sequence matches the movie. Like, as you say, it's very hazy, very, very um, seedy. I quite like that. And and yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, it, I really like the song. It's one of the first I remember. I remember that. And I remember A View to a Kill watching on television. Um, I quite like some of the imagery and the use of diamonds, I think, in the in the title sequence itself. So in terms of, of, of narrative, it sort of tells a story without it, it gives us the world of the film without telling us the narrative. So I quite like the it, the, the, the sequence managed to encapsulate a lot of what the film is about. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I had it very mid-table. So I had it at number 12. So halfway through as a sort of, yeah, it was. It's very mid-table. It's it's not pushing for a European place, but it's also not going to get relegated. Yeah, I, I think my love of the song perhaps skewed my my thoughts here because I'm not sure. I can justify it being above Doctor No in this, but I, hey, why not? Uh, everything's subjective in these kind of uh, ranking things. I think the only thing to add to what everyone said, which I agree with, it kind of it's a it's a 
it's it's a the movie equivalent of sort of you know going around your nans and the and the who smokes quite heavily and the the kind of the wallpapers peeling off the floor a little bit but you like being there because it's your nan um it's kind of that kind of feel of a movie but um uh i i the only thing i'd add to it is there's lots of like extreme zooms and cuts and sort of lots of hyperbolic stylistic gestures of the camera and it just made me think i know certainly society of animation studies um well w- would have been the conference last year but probably this year um all things covid depending um is is sort of looking at ideas of animation beyond the sort of technical definition of animation the idea of sort of animated energies across different mm. filmmaking and there's something different filmmaking categories i should say uh, and there's something animated without there being that much animation in it about the sort of you know extreme close-ups the swipes the sudden gestures that the camera's making in the movie so i i can and as the as this is one of the first to sort of start to embrace more and more sort of overtly live action photography it just sort of strike me as an interesting kind of animatedness if you will um even though there's no um or there's less of an animation on display here um let's go let's go to to number seven um which is uh casino royale so we're not really back in the 60s but we sort of are back in the 60s at the same time and uh i think who so ed you had this at number one casino royale so you you better take it away i do it's one of three that i had jointly first um so it's the 21st Bond movie um, but also in a way it feels like the first one because it's the first Bond novel um, and also because Ian Fleming sold the rights to this Bond novel uh, before he sold the rights to all the others and so where uh, Eon Productions, you know, Harry Saltzman and, and Albert R. Broccoli had the rights to, to all the other novels and all the, and the short stories they didn't have the rights to Casino Royale and as we all know there's, there is a, a previous film of Casino Royale from 1967, as well as a, an, an American TV sort of episode based on Casino Royale from the 1950s as well. So the first thing I feel when I'm watching Casino Royale is that Eon Productions finally got to make it because after decades, the rights came to them. So the, the sequence has a kind of retro feel because it's based around cards and card games. And of course, there's a there's an epic sort of almost like movie within a movie card game that dominates sort of the middle 40 minutes of Casino Royale. So I like the fact that it ties in the, the visuals with the, the movie, but also a re- kind of retro design that almost harks back to like the James Bond book covers. And I think other people have said that as well. I can't cite anyone, but I'm certainly not the first person to say that. Um, so so there's that. The song is modern. I mean, it's uh, Chris Cornell, um, the late Chris Cornell, very sadly, um, singing You Know My Name. Um, so again, You Know My Name is kind of like, sort of almost like, Alex, when you said sort of like the Bond films are sometimes talking out to us and they're sort of saying, you know, you you know who I am, you know who this character is. But the other thing is um, when we get the, going back to sort of thing about the rights and about the first, the first Bond novel, we get the credit, we get a credit in this sequence that says based on the novel by Ian Fleming. And whenever I read that, I just get a lump. Whenever I see that, I just get a lump in my throat. I'm just like, after all these years, though, the, the Bond film series has been pivoting more and more away from the original novels. Um, and yet here we are in the 21st Bond movie and we have a credit that says based on the novel by Ian Fleming. I just think it's so touching. Yeah, I, I I like the style of the sequence very much. I think it's 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 very arresting. I think it's very cool. I think it kind of returns to the Connery era whilst at the same time looking very fresh and contemporary. I think the only reason I've blocked it a bit lower is that, you know, applying my three circles rationale that I sort of say at the beginning of the podcast, which feels like, well, we could have watched a Bond movie in this time now, but, but um, uh, you know, was that I'm not quite sure what it adds 
experientially or thematically to the rest of the movie. I get the card sequence bit, but I I don't see the kind of modernization of Bond that the rest of the movie is trying to do in that sequence. In a way, it's it's animated. Um, nature feels almost at odds with the very visceral photographic way in which Bond is captured throughout the rest of the movie. So only for that reason, it's slightly lower, but it is a great sequence. Yeah, I had it ranked, I think, not much higher. Yeah, so number 11. So in fact, just above Diamonds Are Forever. So I, and I, and I really liked it and I starred it when I was making my notes. And then as I was thinking about it, it got progressively lower. Um, and I think, you know, the, the gun barrel and the blood at the start of the song, I think is all wrong. It do, That does not look like the barrel of a James Bond gun. I'm sorry. The blood is too drippy. There, I've said it. Um, I like the playing card style, but I, I agree with Alex that the, while it keeps the theme of the film in terms of cards and, and does some nice things with the design and iconography of playing cards, actually, um, it does feel at odds with the gritty sequence we've both watched and the, the gritty film that's to come. It, it sort of doesn't quite fit in that sense it's more it's more of a skyfall it's more of a it's more of that kind of movie than a than a credit sequence for a casino royale um i and then then i'm ambivalent on this next bit so i don't like the shots of craig walking towards us i think he works better in silhouette however i also think that fits with him quite literally becoming 007 over the course of the title sequence so the very the very kind of climax of the song you know my name did and that bit where he sort of face comes in and out and then he becomes a, a full person so he ceases to be a silhouette becomes a real person and then comes out again and i feel like that fits with with what the film is trying to do to usher in if you're saying that quantum of solace sort of performs bond's grief this one is very much a he's kind of bond but only just and he's not quite he's not quite there and he's on the cusp and on the edge and i feel like the title sequence perhaps does a good job of of sort of this is bond it looks like the shape of bond but it's not sort of been filled out yet and so th- in that sense it, it works quite nicely i mean it's very striking the, cu- the card stuff is is terrific but uh, yeah part of my problem with the film is that it's 45 minutes too long and you have mathis basically narrating a card game for a middle section which i'm can be a little tiresome, but but there we go. I'm, I'm, oh, no, I'm at least not, pleased. That's it's not the 45 minutes that needs to go out of Casino Royale. It's the it's the bit after the card sequence where they suddenly do a romance, and and that needs to go. That needs to go at the beginning of Quantum of Solace, and then Quantum of Solace can be uh, an hour and can be two hours long, and then and then and then and and also work as an individual movie rather than having to watch Casino yeah. Royale to make sure you understand what's going on in Quantum of Solace. Um, now, I feel that the, the, the part of con- Casino Royale that's too long is the first forty-five minutes. You know, I think that I think that the film only really starts with that overhead shot of the train in Montenegro. Um, about what fifty-five minutes into the movie, and, I, and I'm like, oh, finally, we can get the Casino Royale, have a card game. You know, it's, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of setup in because there's a you know, if this was a screenwriting class and we were looking at the screenplay for Casino Royale, we'd have to say that Act One is about fifty pages long. I mean, it's yeah, I don't, don't worry, I, I, I like it a lot, but it's it's a long film, and I feel that the length is kind of is sort of for, is sort of foregrounded in a way. So it sounds like we need to stage some sort of screening of it where Ed arrives 50 minutes le- late, I I leave 50 minutes early and, and, and Chris, you can have like a McDonald's halfway through and come back and join. Yeah, now we're, <laughs> now we're talking. Um, right, okay, let's do six and five together because once again, they're two sequential um, uh, sequences they're, um, and they're two very similar sequences and there's only one point separating them. So they're nearly tied. Um, and that's, you, you two probably know, by process of elimination is from Russia with Love and Goldfinger. Gold. From Russia with Love actually scored 
by one point higher than Goldfinger, although I, I did have it the other way around. Um, so, you know, the, the second and third James Bond movie um, and and similar in that, 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 that a lot of the feature features the sort of iconic golden dancing girls in From Russia With Love. It's not a golden dancing girl, but it's 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 quite it's quite um, goldenly lit, for want of a better term. I'm one black velvet in everybody um, and, 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 and images projected onto the women, which I think is very interesting in terms of w- what the film's trying to say about the fantasy of the female form that it's offering up. Um, spectators because I think there's something odd about the interplay between um, cinema uh, and the and the female body as so metatextual and sort of self-conscious on screen there that I I couldn't even begin to unpack. For me, Goldfinger is the slightly more um, technically accomplished one of the two, um, uh, but but they're both brilliant and I could give all uh, you know both of them are, are, are wonderful. So I can see why we've got them so closely ranked. Yeah, so, so it's one of the other things that, the, that these two sequences have in common is that they're designed by the same person, aren't they? They're both designed by... They're the two sequences designed by Robert Brownjohn. Am I right about that? So there's a possibility there as well. Um, yeah, from, I, I like both of these sequences a lot. Um, from Russia With Love, I did rank it one point higher, but, but I like them both. Um, from Russia With Love, yeah, the credit's projected onto the body of a belly dancer, um, belly dancing. Um, and that, that sort of, le- that sort of it leads into the sort of... Uh, kind of Turkish uh, sort of strand of the movie because a lot of the film is set in Istanbul um, before they board the Orient Express and and, and uh, head back to London. Um, so so it works thematically. Yes, it's I guess it's it, it it's it's perhaps problematic or easy to see it as problematic because it's it's the objectification of parts of a woman's body uh, to just just for the purposes of shining a light on them to present some credits. That said. I don't think it's necessarily objectifying women um, that the film is presenting beautiful women, but I do. But I do think that the, the overt sort of focus on beautiful female flesh in this sequence is probably problematic. But it's a very exciting sequence. Um, it's got a instrumental version of the song from Mushroom Love that we hear sung uh, at the end of the movie by Matt Munro. So we've got an instrumental version of the song, and and the instrumental version works really, really well. And then the final bars of the song it actually segues into the James Bond theme uh, for those final few credits before we go back into the movie. And I just think it's really, really exciting to watch and listen to. I absolutely agree. It's it's it, I had from Rush with Love at six and Goldfinger at nine, but but. That was only because I think From Rush With Love came first in the in the order I watched them, and they could be a lot closer. Um, for me, yeah, as you're right, as you say, they kind of both Lee, um, both do do the uh, are indebted to the visual style of Brown John. Um, I'm interested in Brown John's relationship to Oscar Fischer, so this German filmmaker who made these experimental movies. Brown John was a protege of a Hungarian, Laszlo uh, Maholi Nagy, who had filmed and screened. Uh, Fishinger's work at the Bauhaus Art School in late 1920s Germany. Um, and I was doing a bit of research around sort of Soviet constructivist cinema, as one often does. Um, and this, this, uh, this at the Bauhaus, they were looking at the manipulation of light um, and the experimental testing of lights displayed onto clouds. Um, and sort of the beams of colourful light and film footage are projected by Brown John then in a similar way onto the female body of screen. And I like the fact that that kind of positions positions these sequences halfway between the scandal of a peep show parlour and then light projection body art. And I really like the, the use of the, the female body of screen in that sense. Um, and so Brown John's use of, of the female body, I prefer it in 
um, from Russia with Love, uh, and because I think it's really exciting, as you say, the way that it starts with the after Bond has allegedly been garroted. Goldfinger is is sort of the iconic Bond sequence, and is perhaps a more refined version of of that. Um, with regards to Goldfinger, I mentioned it mentioned it before that it's one of a, a sort of a number of, of Bond movies that projects foot. I think it projects footage actually from from Russia with Love as part of a part of Goldfinger. So it's one of a number of films that sort of harks back and uses, uses previous Bond movies as part of its sequence. But you know, when you are the only macabre thought I had is that given that those women are entirely painted in gold, that must mean they're all dead. So the entire credit sequence is basically looking at dead gold women, which is a particularly strange thought, but in terms of the iconography of the franchise and what Goldfinger did for the franchise, uh, obviously the Goldfinger title sequence is sort of iconic, matched to Shirley Bass's um, not as good as Moonraker song. So at number four, uh, we have our last Roger Moore movie, uh, which is The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, I've got this ranked at number two. I'm aware, Ed, you've got it ranked at number one, but I'm going to invoke host privilege here, if you don't mind, because I'm going to let you do the next one. Um, but, 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 you know, uh, let's hear everyone's thoughts in a second. But I'll get just to set up why I had this at number two and therefore so highly was that, I mean, the the thing begins with the sort of iconic, uh, it, it goes from live action to the, the title sequence and it has that, you know, the, the, the title sequence of, the, sorry, the pre-title sequence of The Spy Love Me is that moment with the parachute and the Union Jack and, and the Bond's back and uh, the, the, the Bond theme. And then it goes from that to a silhouetted image of a woman clasping the parachute and sort of bringing it down to safety. Um, and then we get the song Nobody Does It Better, um, which is this just incredible, elegiac, mournful song sung from the perspective of an unknown woman about the character of James Bond, um, almost calling him out for everything that we've, you know, in our own way. I mean, we are all fans of the thing, but have tried to call out on this podcast um, for his misogyny, for his, his lack of respect um, of women. And, and yet also celebrating the same things we're celebrating on the podcast. So the, unfortunately, even though I know all these things about you, nobody does it better. And that makes me feel sad for the rest. Uh, and I think the, the visuals of, the, of, that, of that sequence capture the song spirit. Um, there's these sort of images of the marching of women sort of almost being dressed up like dolls, marching across the screen and then being sort of bowled over like they're dominoes. Um, you get the sort of... Uh, the gymnastic twirl around a gun uh, as if the sort of as, as if almost trying to pull the gun away but unable to and yet displaying sort of acrobatics in, in the process and I just think I just think what I find most fascinating about the Bond films from an intellectual perspective is that uh, you know that they are deeply deeply problematic in terms of gender um, but what they what they also are is they allow in their own way by perhaps by being a historically sexualized franchise when mainstream cinema is rarely sexualized is that they allow for these spaces for for, for perhaps probably to read them against the grain and to find nuances and complications and moments and even if they're just moments but moments where where some of that problematic um, sexual politics is at least made more nuanced and I think because of that title sequence it's one of the most well-known title sequences. It's one of the most well-known Bond songs, and it and it and it's a really important counter voice to the masculine sort of bravado of Bond because it articulates the downside of of this pleasure 
in in a really great way. So I mean, I I love that sequence. Um, it's so wonderful. Um, and and I sort of when I was two films into more, I thought, am I not going to like the more ones? And then Spy Who Loved Me came, and I was like, oh, it's fine. It's all going to be fine. I'm going to get through these because because this sequence. And that's kind of what I think about the film as well. Oh, I could go on and on and on, so I won't. But I, I, I love it. Um, I had it ranked at number fifteen, so there we go. Uh, <laughs> um, for for for, re- I mean, I yeah, the Union Jack stuff is great. The silhouetted guns and 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 Bond. I think it's the first time Moore's in one mm. as well. You actually see Roger Moore for the first time. Uh, I've put the women swinging on the guns is cool. Um, if if you are familiar with the Alan Partridge television show, he does a very good acting out in one of the episodes. Steve Coogan as Alan Partridge acts out this this sequence um, very famously and sort of talks about Bond uh, and women swim, swinging on a Luger. I have put the jumping and cartwheeling is odd. And that's all I'll say about it. So I, I agree with everything that Alex has said. Uh, the, the footnote is... And also there are some really weird cartwheeling bits. Um, and also it's invested in in skiing, which the film, if I remember, doesn't return to. Mm. So the title sequence is, I know it's mm. important for the sort of relationship between Anya and Bond and what Bond has mm. done to her lover, um, mm. triple X, um, uh, who we think is triple X, but isn't, um, who I believe is actually an actor who was going to be screen tested for Bond. So there's an interesting yeah. parallel there. Yeah, and, and he cer- yeah, yeah, he certainly had the chest hair, but, <laughs> but there's something around. Okay. So it's harking, but it's trying to remind you in that title sequence of the really iconic bits. But actually after that, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what the film's doing with skiing, but, um, Anyway, uh, it's, it's fine. Yeah, but it's it's also number fifteen, and I had it I had it below the living daylight, so I can only apologise. Wow. I mean, yeah, I I think I mean I think it's yeah. I mean, Alex, you've given me a lot of things to think about there in your in your in your fantastic sort of defence of this one because I I hadn't thought of any of those points really, but I but I can see them in it. Um, I really really like it. This is joint first for me. Um, I, the song. I mean, the song, the song, the song. I mean, John Barry, of course, who had scored most of the Bond films up to this point. Um, the only ones he hadn't done were Doctor No, but Monty Norman and Living uh, Living Let Die with George Martin. Um, and of course, he had a you know a fantastically distinguished uh, body of work through the Bond films as well as all his un- other wonderful films. But Marvin Hamlish, who scored The Spy Who Loved Me, I think just delivers a triumphant score. Um, 1977 disco inflected Bond score and the song by Marvin Hamlish and Carol Bayer Sega um, song by, sung by Carly Simon I just think is equally triumphant um, Just, I'll just say two more very very quick things about this sequence um, one is um, over the final lyric of nobody does it half as good as you we have the credit produced by Albert R. Broccoli this was the first of the Eon Bond films that Broccoli produced on his own um, Harry Saltzman had sold his interest in the franchise to United Artists after Man with the Golden Gun. And there'd been a three-year gap between Golden Gun and Spy Who Loved Me. And Broccoli, I'm sure, would have felt that it was make or break for the Bond series, his first opportunity producing on his own. So that that credit, nobody does it. That line, nobody does it half as good as you on the Albert R. Broccoli credit is, is him patting himself on the back for a job well done. And I think everyone would have patted him on the back for the job well done in The Spy Who Loved Me. And the second thing I'll say is I love the song, but the single version of the song goes on a bit at the end. You know, there's a, there's a darling, you're the best, sweet baby, you're the best. It sort of goes on a bit at the end. The film curtails it because after we have the directed by Lewis Gilbert credit, we just have a final baby, you're the best. And then we have a kind of Hamlishian sort of synchronized flourish that brings the song to an end as the as the the, the movie Iris is out into um, General Gogol's office, and he walks over, sits down at his desk, 
presses his buzzer and says, um, send an agent triple X. And it's just beautiful the way the, the song leads back into the movie. Oh, yes. I suppose I suppose my only other note, thinking about you know the film is better than the... I mean, I feel terrible now having ranked it at number 15, but there we go. Um, is, is you know, there's lots around the movie. She's, I hadn't thought about that three-year gap. Um, there's lots of interesting stuff around the production. So Claude Renoir as the cinematographer, the sort of secret role played by Stanley Kubrick in advising how to light certain shots because of Renoir's failing eyesight. So the film is particularly iconic, and I, and I just wonder whether Austin Powers has ruined it for me. Um, because of the what it's doing what it's doing you know goldfinger is to the 60s bonds and connery's bonds that the spy who loved me is to the more films you know i think that was his sort of you know he's he's addressed as commander he's wearing the one of only three instances where he wears his his um sort of navy uniform uh it has uh robert brown may or may not in, in a role that may or may not be the future M, you have Shane Rimmer, who is uh, did a lot of voiceover work for the Bond movies uh, and also was one of the voices of the Thunderbirds, which I always find interesting. Um, uh, you have good gadgets. You have a great, great w- woman in, in Anya Amasova. There's a lot. There's just a, there's just a lot going for the movie. And I really, really, really like the movie. I like the gun barrel. I like the music. I like Hamlish's score, as you said. Um, yeah. Why did I do it number 15? I think it was the bouncing. I think it was the bouncing. Let's move on to, to number three, our final Connery, actually, um, which might give you two um, a sense of where we're going if you hadn't already worked it out. Um, Thunderball. Uh, Chris and I had it ranked at number seven, both of us. Um, yeah. And Ed, you had it in one of your many number ones. So, Ed, could you... Uh, I, th- I think Thunderball's a more divisive movie amongst Bond fans. I kind of really like it, but I recognise that it's very different from a lot of Bond films. Um Talk to us about Thunderball. Yeah, I think it is a divisive movie, but I, 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 I firmly on the side of loving it. Um, everything about Thunderball is big. Okay, it's the first Bond film shot in scope, and so the frame is bigger. Um, it was the longest Bond film to date, the first one over two hours long. It made giants amount, giant amounts of money at the box office. And it has the most dastardly plan to date as well. Spectre steals two atomic bombs from a NATO training mission and uses the bombs to hold the world to ransom. So this is a big, big movie. The song is equally big. It's huge, brassy orchestration. It's Tom Jones belting out the tune. It's kind of a far cry from Matt Munro crooning from Russia with Love just two films ago. Um, Whereas the the Thunderball song begins with a set of loud, brassy notes... I love how we don't even really hear the very start of the song in the credit sequence because the song comes in under the sound of the water jet emanating from the back of Bond's Aston Martin as he sprays the henchman with it at the end of the pre-credit sequence. It just adds to the sense that Thunderball is so big with so much catching our attention that even the song has to fight its way through to the front. The credit sequence has an underwater theme as befits this film because some of the action is going to take place underwater later on. Um, I love the way the title comes up twice as if one Thunderball isn't enough. Um, Actually, so it proved, because 18 years later, we got Never Say Never Again, which is a remake of Thunderball. But Thunderball is also more than enough. It's a a giant film. Um, There's the the credit sequence, there's a glorious timing of credits, images, and music, I think more elegant than ever here. Um, There's also the oddity of Kevin McClory's producer credit, 
big long backstory that I, that I will cover in 10 seconds. There was a copyright fight around Thunderball and it led to Broccoli and Saltzman teaming up with Kevin McClory to make the movie and Kevin McClory got the producer's credit. Um, and at the end of the sequence, we have blue bubbles and red bubbles over Terence Young's pale kind of off-white director credit. So we have blue, white and red, the colours of the French flag, the tricolore. And then where do we find ourselves as the credits dissolve through to the next scene? Paris. Largo parks his car, gets out, glares at the traffic warden, crosses the street and enters the building. It's completely classic. The only other thing I'd say about about the sequence is the song. I've never worked out whether the song's about Bond or whether it's about Largo. He always runs while others walk, he acts while other men just talk. That sounds like Bond. But he looks at the world and wants it all and he strikes like Thunderball. Well, Thunderball is a kind of code name for the mushroom cloud you get when an atomic bomb goes off. And it's the name of the mission here to bring down Largo and his dastardly plan. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Um, it's it's. I do love the Brown Johns, but it's nice to see Morris Bender back with this one. I believe that's right, unless someone's going to correct me. Uh, the silhouettes are back. Uh, I like the the sort of return to some level of simplicity and and a level of sort of you know um, crisp colours and blacks and 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 that's all lovely. Um, yeah, lots of uh, of the first the first use of of a of a. Um, of a sports activity in a title sequence that actually does have significance to the plot and the theme in that we have a lot of swimming and diving. Uh, usually when we get, you're right with skiing, skiing tends to be because it was in the pre-title sequence, but, um, but the swimming is sort of does add to the, to the film and the color scheme. So yeah, I, I mean, I really liked it. I think, I think I would rank it um, lower than Thunderball and Goldfinger. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a wonderfully accomplished sequence. And I like Thunderball. I think you once said to me, Ed, that Thunderball's um, almost a David Lean Bond movie. It's sort of, you know, it's slightly too long, in, but in a good way. In a, it's epic. And, and um, I like that quality of the movie. And I think the, the, the title sequence sets that up nicely. Yeah, I mean, if anything, I'd say I, I haven't seen a David Lean film as good as Thunderball. So <laughs> Fighting but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> the best David Lean film David Lean never directed. I just, I just think, it's, I just think it's it's bombastic in a good way. I don't always like bombast, but it's bombastic in a good way. Um, I also just think, just one more thing. Sorry, and then Chris, I'll I'll shut up. But just one more thing, which is, I actually think that for all its kind of outlandish plot. Thunderball feels to me more rooted in the real world than a lot of Bond movies. There's lots of story detail that make it feel make me it feel as though this plot actually is happening, and so I really really like Thunderball for all sorts of reasons. I, I no, I, I don't have anything to to add. I think the the notion of scale is really important, and the poster that sort of says, you know, look out here comes the biggest bond of all and i hadn't really thought about it, that even the song as bombastic as it is has to sort of fight for for something resembling an appearance um all i've got is kind of the first i felt like it was the first real engagement with the potential of silhouettes and the kind of aesthetic potential of silhouettes um and the sort of underwater women swimming and ties in it's about something that the film isn't about yet which i quite like you know it's it's about it's setting up things that are going to to kind of happen um and i really like the kind of synchronized singing and the film's title you're right when it appears twice um i remember i remember videoing it off of the television and it was the first bomb movie i was trying to record and it was too long for the cassette because with the adverts it was just too long um very much so, like yeah, this podcast I, at this point um well i know um <laughs> but there's 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 sort of yeah i mean it's it's i i often i feel like it might get forgotten because it's the one after goldfinger and i feel that about thunderball generally um and i can never quite remember and then i watch it and i go oh yeah this might be better than goldfinger 
and then and then I'm then I'm happy. But um, yeah, so hard degree. I ranked it seven, but could be could be no. Yeah, I did. I ranked ranked it seven, um, and could be higher. But we'll go with seven. At, at number two, uh, we have on Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, which I had ranked at number one. Uh, and I really, it's this and Spy Who Loved Me were the two standouts for me. Uh, and I basically had to toss a coin because it was getting time to recording. I think if I had my time again, I might swip it, switch it around the other way because having articulated the Spy Who Loved Me, I think that sequence means more to me than On Imagine Secret Service because I think On Imagine Secret Service does a very similar thing in terms of that thematic augmenting that I've said throughout the, 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 the um, throughout the podcast. I, you know, we get that that incredible silhouette of Bond sort of almost in slow motion running away from the screen, followed by that just startling image of Union Jacks and a sort of display of silhouetted women. Um, that, you know, it's incredibly iconic image that sort of seems to sum up all the suave and the um, the masculine sort of prowess and the sense of empire and imperialism and and superiority and, and the nobody does it better quality of, of Bond. Um, just in the same way that it's sort of, you know, almost it's doing with, with Bond's relationship to national what Spy Love Me is doing with gender. Uh, I think perhaps what, but what, why I might flip it around the other way now is thinking through it. I'm less comfortable with that aspect of Bond than I am the gender stuff because I think I'm more interested in the in Bond's relationship to women because that that seems to mean more to me as a as a male living in 2020 than a male living in you know 1960 when this film was made. Um, so I love, but I love it. I think, and I love the reusing of of the old the Bond films to get to that point. It's an interesting industrial moment because, of course, this is um, George Lazenby's one and only Bond film. So it's sort of it's trying to stitch together the Bond we're about to see and have seen and being introduced to with uh, with the Bond that we already know, the Sean Connery Bond. Um, so it's almost doing a, a Spectre esque sort of bringing together of various movies, and it's using the title sequence to do that. So I think I think in terms of the artistry, it's probably number one. But in terms of what means the most to me, actually, it might be my number two. But but I love it. I love it on a Magic Secret Service. Yeah, I, I've only got a, a couple of couple of things um, because I I'm not as familiar with the film. I think I've only seen it the complete way through once with you at the at the Prince Charles in London. Um, back when cinemas were a thing. So uh, on a Manchester Secret Service, yeah, I mean, you love the stuff, footage from other Bonds. I th- felt like it's very crisp and very clean. And, and um, I love Bond hanging from sort of clock hands. Absolutely yeah. love that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely love that. Mm. I'd forgotten like that was in there. Um, yeah, it's like Vertigo meets Buster Keaton mm, I lo- abs- yeah. and Harold Lloyd or something like that. Um, but what I think is really important is on a Manchester Secret Service kind of returns to animation, it has that kind of martini glass come... Uh, what's the word? Egg timer. Yeah, like an hour, sort of an hourglass. Hour yeah, egg timer. Um, yeah. But the yeah, it kind of features because it features a montage from all the previous Bond films. There's something around that. The importance of that sequence has got to establish. It's got to. It's got to draw on, establish, consolidate, and remind uh, audiences of kind of brand identity because it's got to connect Connery to Lazenby. Like it's got to, um, and you don't see George Lazenby as you do with lots of intros to, to Bond sequences. You don't see his face and it could be that actor. It could be, it could be that actor who dies at the beginning of um, uh, living daylights, but it could also be, we don't see, we don't see people's faces until it's kind of revealed to us. Um, and I feel like, yeah, that kind of combination of naked women, of, of guns, of the Union Jack, of sequences from other Bond movies. Of course, um, 
on a Majesty's Secret Service has that sequence where Bond is collecting. He, re- he sort of essentially uh, resigns and collects a bunch of gadgets that he could never possibly have got from the previous movies. But the sequence, the, t- the title sequence does a similar kind of thing. So in terms of securing brand identity and reminding audiences of, of what Bond films do, uh, yeah, it's sort of sort of unbeatable and really classy as well. So um, yeah, it was it was certainly high up on my on my list. I ranked it four. Um, yeah, I feel a little bit of shame now actually because I mean, on a Majesty's Secret Services, you know, as as beloved a Bond movie as any, I think for me, I mean, I really really adore it. It's right up there, possibly my favourite of all, um, along with a couple of two or three others. But it's really right up in that top cluster. So, and I didn't rank the title sequence as highly as the two of you did, um, but that's not to say that I that I really can find any fault with it. I mean, I think the one thing I feel doesn't work especially well is I I, I totally get the, the the absolutely the brand sort of assertiveness of using the clips from the the previous Bond films in the kind of hourglass. I just think the clips that it chooses is a little uh, are a little bit awkward, um, and the way that it presents them on screen feels a little bit like a sort of almost like one of those kind of almost like a sort of Bond compilation tape kind of thing that that, so there's a slightly clunky element to how it does it but i but i respect that it's doing it i love the hourglass thing i love bond hanging off clock faces i think we have we see right at the end of the sequence before we go through into portugal we see the the hands of a clock ticking backwards and i think that plus the, the the image is slipping through the hourglass really gives this sense of time slipping away and obviously there's a kind of theme in the film we have all the time in the world there's there is a song we have all the time in the world but there's also a theme of we have all the time in the world but of course they don't and that is laced throughout that opening credits so no 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 honor majesty is fantastic um what was i thinking well which leads us to our number one which by process of, of elimination is the daniel craig skyfall uh chris you had this at number one you predicted yes. this was going to happen about a week ago while we were chatting on whatsapp so i think you are the man to um talk us through the onto the edge of the finish line here let's um let's uh, talk about skyfall so there's lots of interesting thing i mean I'm, I'm thrilled i think it's it's funny because i've always been a bit um kind of reticent towards the film like I, I i i know why people love the film and i'm sort of i sort of enjoy not being the person that gets swept on it or swept up in it because i know quantum of solace is infinitely better as we as we all do um but i can totally see there's so much academic writing on skyfall and its relationship as i mentioned earlier to the olympics and british national identity and and you know anticipating brexit and loads loads of stuff that that makes skyfall interesting i really like the title sequence and i and i hadn't realized i really liked it until i watched it for this podcast and thought this is fantastic um first of all where and who is whose hand is that that drags bond down doesn't matter it connects that sequence up to the previous exactly that kind of cupping hands that we've talked about binder's fascination with hands so i really like that that sort of yep this is just a hand that's pulling him down um the camera moves through spaces. I really, really like the um, skeleton teeth that become gravestones. It's one of my favourite bits uh, where the camera's moving through. And, and uh, I like the the Macau um, dragons sequence is, is terrific in the title sequence. Um, we were talking just before we started uh, about four hours ago that um, about two minutes in, there is a shot of a woman looking at us, pointing a gun. That could be from, from the 70s or 80s. Uh, so I think it's really fantastic. I really like the song. Um, I know it's fashionable to really like the song, but it's because it's a terrific song. And yeah, I, I, while the, while the film I'm sort of ambivalent about, I just hadn't realised how how much I really liked that sequence. And there's a bit 
where she sings where you go i go and it's sort of like a mirror image of black yeah. silhouettes as they rotate and sort of diffuse out against a white background so there's so many different moments in that title sequence that that doesn't feel samey um there are bits that seem to hark back in tone and design to previous title sequences but give it a sort of a, a positive spin and um or a um uh, kind of modern spin i should say so yeah i i mean i i really like i just think it's yeah really really classy and, and crisp and um i remember the colors i remember the sort of turquoisey dark colors right at the very start and the appearance of the title and then obviously the very poignant and 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 featuring judy dench's m for the last time so love it me too it was i i had it pretty high i had it at number four um it very very high high on my list um i think it's endlessly rewatchable as a sequence in itself um yeah i too have a, a a sort of a complex relationship with skyfall there's a lot i like about it i like i like it's i like it's 2012-ness very much i i think i mean i i've said to, i think to you guys before that i i quantum of solace is for me a masterpiece bomb movie um but it would have of you know, absolutely been the wrong movie to release as the 50th anniversary Bond movie. Everyone would have been like, what? Whereas Skyfall uh, was a perfect 50th anniversary Bond movie. I think everybody liked it. People who don't like Bond movies liked it. Um, it's got a fantastic part for Judi Dench, um, a leading role, I think, in, in this film. Um, so it, so I, li- I, like all, I like all the sort of the positive sort of celebratory uh, aspects of Skyfall. I love the fact that over the end credits, after we have the gun barrel, because yes, the gun barrel happens at the end of Skyfall, it's followed by a kind of um, image of the gun barrel saying Bond 50 years. Uh, you know, so the film itself is celebrating its own 50th anniversary. I love all of that. Absolutely everything you say about the sequence, Chris, um, really, really artistic. Um, I love the sort of the smoke that turns into a skull. Um, I love the, the fire-breathing dragons. I think they're really scary, actually. I like Bond sort of caught in a kind of maze of mirrors, firing at his own reflection. At one point, Silver, uh, Javier Bardem's villain, crops up just for a couple of seconds, and it's in a pose that that is that sort of um, foreshadows when he walks into the select committee later on in the movie. I think it's beautifully done. The song is, is you know, Adele just knocks it out of the park, I think. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really like it. I just want to check very quickly. I know that we're running to time, but I just want to see if there's anything else in particular I wanted to see to say about it. Yeah, just about the the lyrics. I love that bit when it goes into the kind of negatives as well, um, particularly um, when Adele sings, you know, the security of your loving arms keeping me from harm. And we have Roger Deakins credit as director of photography while these kind of, well, this sort of um, sort of symmetrical image of women sort of blasts apart. It's, 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 it's gorgeous. Yeah, and, I, and the only thing I'll add to it is that what I also love about it is it, it's got lots of images that then come up in the movie. It almost plays the movie in reverse if you watch it closely, right? It sort of, um, it, it starts in Skyfall, um, which is where the movie ends, and then sort of slowly travels back through the through the film sort of um, locations. Um, and, and that creates kind of an interesting effect in that almost when you're watching the movie, it's like you've already seen all of these places before, even though you can't possibly have registered that that's exactly what they're doing on first viewing. Um, so that creates the, you know, back to this, you know, the notion of fancy, it creates this idea that sort of, it's almost like, a, you know, it's almost like I've been here, but I've never been here. And and that's what the film's doing, right? You've seen this movie before, but you've never seen this movie before. Um, so there's a, there's a, the, we've talked about this for better or for worse. There's a timeless or an out of time feel of Skyfall in that it's the 50th anniversary. So in some ways it feels like it's a sort of curtain call. 
It's also a sort of return for Daniel Craig after a, a sort of moment of absence after Quantum of Solace. Um, it's a film about Bond aging, um, but at the same time seems to be almost a rebirth of a, of a setting the franchise back into a template that it hadn't been for ages. It ends with a back in the office with M and 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 a, and a new M that sort of more physically and, and in terms of gender resembles the the M of the 60s movie. So there's an out-of-time quality to the film that perhaps is played out in the title sequence, and it feels like we're both watching something we've never seen and and have already seen at the same time. So there's, so there's that quality to it as well that I really like. You've basically described Spectre, though. Like, Oh, that's why Spectre's been, I've been a movie. Here, but, but like but, I've been here before and, and the role of time and timelessness, and obviously that the thing about the, the Bond and his con- complex and vexed relationship to time anyway, that, that and, and this is born out of kind of contemporary reboot, reboot culture. It's both a reboot, but he's being rebooted in Casino Royale with the M that was the M for the previous Bond and all these sorts of things. So Bond has this kind of strange relationship to history anyway. But um, yeah, I'm thrilled that Skyfall has made it made it to, to number one because um it's sort of yeah it's a fitting way to end the podcast like it's a fitting way to sort of yeah it's both it's both rounding off some some history and hopefully looking forward to a film that isn't isn't kind of out in the in the public consciousness yet right well i guess we better wrap up because because listeners have 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 been patient with us there i hope they enjoyed the, the romp through bond history and i i certainly i certainly did um and ed thank you so much for joining us and sharing that 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 journey through Bond with us. Thank you both again. It's been an absolute pleasure to be be here and to be part of your podcast, guys. So thank you very much, and hope to see you soon as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So and 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 Ed, we we mentioned your book at the beginning of of the um of the show, but you know that was a while ago for everybody. So if people wanted to um, access your book, give them a quick um, sales pitch and tell them when they can get it. Oh, blimey. Okay, so yeah, the book came out a year ago, um, published by Edinburgh University Press. Um, uh, performing ethics through film style, um, and the subtitle is Levinas with the Dardenne brothers, Barbe Schroeder and Paul Schroeder. It it takes aspects of Emmanuel Levinas's ethical philosophy and aspects of the filmographies of the Dardenne brothers, Barbe Schroeder and Paul Schroeder, and talks about film style as performing a Levinasian ethics. So the idea here that that films aren't just about ethics, you know. The, the, that, you know, there were films that were about ethical dilemmas, for example, um, but but that we can see ethics and, and in my argument, Levinasian ethics, it's sort of coming through the styles of films, certain films. Um, and so it's looking at film style as, as something that doesn't just sort of tell stories, but actually in itself conveys significance um, and, ha- and how sort of how that how that how that can make us feel really as viewers, the, the kind of experience it, that film style can invite us into as viewers. Um, it's also a bunch of movies and filmmakers that I really, really like. And so it's just a, it was a pleasure to write about those films as well. Uh, and it's available through all means that yeah. most books are available from. And is it going to be out yeah. paperback soon or is it, it'll be ready I, to be soon, I, right? Last next I don't, I don't know yet. Hopefully it will come out in paperback. Um, sure it will. So, and I'm sure, I'm sure at some point in time when people are listening to us, it is about as in paperback in that timeless Skyfall-esque quality. And and, <laughs> and because, you, because I get to ask impossible questions on this podcast, what Bond film is the most Levinasian, would you say? Well, I mean, I've, you know... The, the the presentation that I gave at the um, Spies on British Screens conference, where the three of us shared a panel on Bond, and um, I know Alex, you presented on Spectre, and Chris, you presented on Skyfall. I did give a talk on Quantum of Solace, and and I was talking about sort of you know emotion through film style in Quantum of Solace, 
Um, so I, I certainly feel that Quantum of Solace taps into a sense of of sort of the self and the other through its film style that we that it conveys Bond's uh, emotional state, but also allows us to see Bond at a distance and contemplate him as a as a figure separate from us. That's why I think it's it's a particularly compelling Bond film because it because it uses it uses style in such a pointed way to to sort of underscore aspects of Bond's character. I think rather uniquely for the series, or I think Honor Majesties does it as well. I don't mean that qualitatively. I do think other Bond films are brilliant, brilliant, equally brilliant in other sorts of ways. I just think that Quantum has that particular particular quality about it. I mean, I think obviously some of the stuff we've talked about today in relation to the title sequences and the uh, the use of style, and hopefully it's given a chance. People can obviously listen along and watch the title sequences for themselves. Obviously, we've thrown a lot of information across, um, well, goodness knows how many years, 24 films, uh, repeating imagery. But um, I really like the close stylistic analysis that we've tried to give in relation to these sequences and perhaps perhaps and i wouldn't say necessarily challenge some of the the narratives around the, the title sequences because they have been um the focus of a of a, a number of, of scholars and scholarship and, and stuff like that um but it's it's nice to to take it is nice to transplant them out of their context a little bit and and focus in them as piece of uh, pieces of fantasy animation which is obviously the, the whole the whole kind of purpose of this and to think about these title sequences in new ways and and to get you on as both a bond fan as a friend and, and as somebody interested in film style and and being able to textually analyze these these sequences has been has been really great so um yeah it was a what a, what a ride but time to get out Yes, I think we're in danger of looking like the last 45 minutes of Casino Royale in a, in a second. So um, so quick bit of admin, of course. You can find us uh, at fancy-animation.org. You can read our latest blog posts and download the archive of podcasts, some of which we've mentioned on this show. Um, you can find us on various social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. And the handle is at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, let us know your choice for the next listener choice. Uh, we're doing a Christmas special. So what's your... Or, um, what's your Christmas favorite Christmassy example of fantasy animation, Ed? If you want to uh, have a quick think now, I'm going to put you to that when I get to the end of the sentence. Um, uh, what else? Anything else we've got to plug, Chris? I don't think there is. Um, no, no, no. We're um, we're coming to the end of our of, of the year, so um, thanks everybody to, for those who have submitted blog posts and, and kind of come up come to us with ideas. Um, if you'd like to write on the Bond title sequences or anything related to fantasy animation, um, 2021 is is sort of your baby. So do get in touch via the website. Um, drop us a line uh on the kind of how to contribute tab and uh yeah pitch us your idea and we'll we'll see you in in 2021 essentially academics fans practitioners all are welcome edge your 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 suggestion for a christmas fantasy animation we could uh we could cover on the podcast next time well i mean this is tricky i mean and you have put me on the spot here i mean i'm just thinking and the first thing that came to mind was of course a film that is often debated at this time of year is it a christmas film or not is die hard because it's set on christmas eve but is it a christmas movie or not so when you when you ask the question the first thing i thought about was die hard begins in the late afternoon and then it and and it's set over the course of one night this terrorist attack on this building and how this this cop has to try and has to try and sort of um, save the day and so the thing I was going to say that I think might tap into aspects of fantasy, might tap into aspects of animation, um, is when I watch Die Hard, I'm always fascinated by how it shows us the darkening day out of the windows of this skyscraper. And I don't know sort of to what extent that sort of sort of you know carries elements of the fantastical nature of the of the movie because it's set in the real world, but it's also quite a an outlandish 
1980s thriller, but also in sort of animation terms as well, sort of the use of visual effects in Die Hard. Um, again, it's real world, it's trying to be very realistic, but at the same time, there's something very sort of staged about it, about its time scale um, across this night, Christmas Eve, that I, that I just think is visually very exciting. Well, there we are, from Die Another Day to Die Hard uh, in, in a few hours. Uh, we made it. Uh, Ed, thank you very much once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you both. And we'll uh, see you all for the next episode. Uh, take care in the meantime, and goodbye. Bye. This is the end Hold your breath and count to ten Feel the earth move then hear my